This is Queen Victoria. Welcome to Murder Lab, the podcast where I dissect serial killers and analyze what I find. Today, I will be talking about local serial killers. Igor, my not-so-socially-distant assistant, did cover some local true crime in general, so make sure you go back and listen to that episode if you did not listen to it yet. So I figured she did local true crime. I'll do local serial killers for an episode, and I'm sure there'll be more that we can do in the future. But first, before we jump in that, let's go over some business. I'm pretty excited because now we have Murder Lab enamel pins available. That's right. It's the beaker with the Murder Lab logo. It's, it's pretty amazing. Thanks to Pins and Needles, they procured those for me, and I'm very excited to share them with you. I will post pictures and all that good stuff. Make sure you check out Pins and Needles. They're on Facebook, Etsy, and Instagram. So check them out. And they've got all kinds of cool things. I've got several of their pins that they made. Also, we are working with a graphic artist to come up with a, to help us with the Crime Keeper logo and maybe clean up the Murder Lab logo a little bit. I don't know. You may, we don't know what might happen. It might, it's going to be awesome no matter what. So make sure you keep an eye out to see when we have new logos and stuff like that, which means it'll be more merch and more exciting possibilities. So we have that in the hopper. One other thing that I'm super excited about is Gem City Comic Con just happened. Now, I don't know if that seems weird that a true crime podcaster would get excited about a Comic Con. Maybe it makes sense to you, maybe it doesn't, but... I believe that I've mentioned before that I have recently gotten into comics, specifically horror comics. And Comic-Con was pretty awesome. It was at the Dayton Convention Center. There were quite a few vendors. I was a little surprised because I hadn't been to the Comic-Con in a few years. And I hadn't been really when I was super collecting comics. I had just gone to see the collectibles and, you know, just check it out. So this year, I had a couple of goals. And one of them was not to spend too much money. I think we all know that I did not meet that goal. But at least I got to support local comic book people and local creative people. So we're going to focus on that and not on the big hit that my credit cards took. I was excited because it was interesting because first I spoke with a guy who who made a Dracula and Frankenstein versus the Nazis comic book series. And then when I caught back up with Todd, I was like, oh, my God, I just talked to this guy. He did this. And, and Todd looked at me and was like, are you serious? And, OK, yeah. And he said he had just come from a booth where a guy had done a comic on Charlie Chaplin versus Adolf Hitler. So Nazis are all over the place. But at least we have beloved characters fighting them. So that's always interesting to see. Someone would have had um, Ebon Press. And if you don't know, if you're not familiar with that, they have, um, I'm familiar with them because of the Lucio Fucci comics. They do an incredible job. They actually make it like this really big deal. I won't go too much into that, but I was excited because I met somebody there that had some, some of them. So I bought one and we got to bond over stuff. So that was always amazing to do. I bought a, the second edition issue of the Soccer Mom Killer. I can't wait till the first one's available again. They sold out. So I'm eager to get the first one so I can know what happens in the series. Because I'm not going to start with number two. I've got to wait for number one. But I wanted, to, I wanted to support them, so I bought number two. At one point, I was talking to someone, and I mentioned the serial killer podcast, Murder Lab, that I have. And someone's like, did, I, did you say serial killers? And it was literally like, they just all of a sudden were right next to you. And, oh, hi. <laughs> did you say serial killers? 
And I said, I just so happened to have said that. He was selling a game called the Serial Killer Card Game. He had a binder that had all these cards that are part of the game. So they have all these serial killers, and it's not just all the well-known ones. It's some of the lesser-known ones. So they have this game, and they also have expansion packs. So he said that's part of the reason they they d dug into some of the lesser-known ones, because they really wanted to flesh things out and have these expansion packs. And I, again, trying not to spend lots of money, I was like, can I go online and buy this? Because I thought maybe I can wait till the next paycheck. But he's like, well, I just so happen to have two here. And, uh, you know, I like to support. So being supportive and not being selfishly wanting it, no matter how it my budget handles it, I went and bought it from him. That dude was so excited. So excited. And <laughs> so told him about the podcast. And now he may be on the podcast. You could look forward to that. I bought the product. We chatted, shook hands. We were both excited. I happened to go to the Game Swap booth and the Pins and Needles booth, which was right across from him. And I was chatting with them. Well, he comes back over and he's like, hey, you know what? I want to give you an enamel pin. And I was like, well, you know what? It's kind of crazy. I have enamel pins now, too. And these are the guys that made them. So we exchanged our enamel pins, shook hands again. Guy was super friendly. And then he sent me a follow-up email. He emailed Murder Lab and just followed back up and said that he was excited to hear how I thought about the game and he was excited to talk on the podcast. That was an exciting, unexpected thing to happen. So, you know, always networking. Another one of the goals was, well, one was procure comics that I enjoy. Another was to promote Murder Lab. So I left cards around places. And also, it was suggested to me, I believe it was probably Todd the Fox that came up with it because he is my muse and my inspiration. And he said, you should make a Murder Lab comic book. And I was like, holy shit, I should do that thing. So that was one of the things I wanted to look at local artists and see if maybe there was any that had art that I enjoyed. Maybe we could work together. So so we'll see. I'm, I talked to a couple of the people, uh, the artists there, and we may have some collaboration in the future about it. I'm also in talks with, when I mentioned GameSwap, Matt Brassfield has a couple comic labels. One's like there's Bloodscreen Comics and Sparkle Comics. So he also has a stable of writers and illustrators and stuff. I am very seriously considering making a Murder Lab comic. So if you're excited about that, let me know. I have some ideas. So we have all kinds of things in the works, including Todd had the idea for me to start a YouTube channel and do Comics by Candlelight, where I talk to you about the comics that I'm reading and give you suggestions and stuff. So we're also working on that. And so we're going to be on YouTube. Um, there might be some Murder Lab stuff on YouTube. So again, we're always working. We're always thinking. We're excited. So you have things to be excited about too. In less exciting news, I do subscribe to the New York Times because frequently when I am researching, New York Times articles pop up. So I just, uh, I went ahead and signed up for it. And I received an article about a suspect in Atlanta area spa shootings pleads guilty to four counts of murder. Robert Aaron Long also faces four murder charges in a neighboring county where the prosecutor is seeking the death penalty. So he's killed eight people and he has pled guilty. He's already got four life sentences without the possib possibility of parole, plus 35 years in prison. That's just for the four charges, but he still, he still faces four more charges. He admitted that he was responsible for Mar his March 16th shooting spree. He was addicted to pornography and prostitution, and he wanted to, quote, punish the people who are the objects of his obsession. 
A few days before his killing spree, Mr. Long had been kicked out of his parents' house after he refused to return to treatment for what he has described as a sexual addiction. He had moved in with a friend and an accountability partner from his church. He'd been working at a landscape company, but was told not to come to work on March 16th because it was raining. Instead, he spent the morning viewing pornography. As you would. His friend could hear him and confronted him about it. He left the house embarrassed and ashamed and intended to commit suicide. So the article goes on to say he bought a 9mm handgun and a bottle of Four Roses bourbon. He planned to go to Young's Asian Massage, a strip mall business in Cherokee County, to pay for sex and then kill himself. But as he sat for an hour in the parking lot drinking and growing more drunk, his plan changed. He he decided to commit vigilante justice against the sex industry. He had been to Young's multiple times. He said he went that he went in that day, gave his money, led to a room where a young woman performed a sexual act on him. He put on his clothes, went to the bathroom at the back of the parlor, came out and began shooting. He wounded someone and killed four people. Then he drove to the heart of Atlanta where he fatally shot four women of South Korean descent at two other spas. After the shootings, they released a photograph of him taken from security cameras near the spa. The parents saw it and contacted the sheriff's department. They had been following Mr. Long's movements with a tracking app called Find My Kid, and the law enforcement used it to locate Mr. Long as he fled south. He was captured while driving an SUV on Interstate 75, about 150 miles south of Atlanta, and taken into custody. At the, f- the first shooting, the person that he injured, he actually shot him in the face. He's upset because he could no longer sing, and he loved to sing. He reminded everyone that Mr. Long left children without their parents, without their mothers, and it left families with empty hearts. I'll do some more digging, and if as more things come out, I'll give you an update. But just as a reminder, a couple, a few different types of serial killers. So you got your standard serial killer that has like the cooling off period and kills at least, you know, two or three people over a period of time. And then you have your mass murders where they kill a whole bunch of people in one place at one time. And you have your spree killers, which, as they said, he went on a shooting spree. And what accounts for a spree is it's in more than one place. So they kill people in one place. They travel to another place. And usually it's with it's usually within a pretty close time period. But but the point is they're they're traveling and killing people in a few different places within a relatively short period of time. So he would be and obviously he's killed like eight people. So he would be considered a spree serial killer. All right, on to the main attraction. So there are, when I looked up local serial killers, I, there's a lot of, this person was born here, but they actually killed other places or that kind of thing. There were quite a few that maybe, they were like spree killers, you know, they traveled. So maybe they had a stop in Cincinnati or something like that. And that was one of the stops among there. So there was a bunch of people. I narrowed it down, and I'm just going to be talking about Jack the Strangler, who was a murderer in 1900, right here in Dayton, Ohio. I had never heard of him. It's interesting because I bought this book called Cold Serial about the Jack the Strangler murders because I saw it was about, you know, serial killer, and I was like, okay, I'll get that. And then later I realized, oh, this dude was in Dayton. So I already had the book. So I'm covering him, Neil Bradley Long, who was also in the Dayton area, but he was in like 1970s. 
And then I'll be covering some murders that happened here in Dayton in 2018, which may or may not have been serial killer related. We shall see. I did not grow up in Dayton, so I don't know lots and lots about it. And I imagine even if you did grow up in Dayton, maybe you didn't hear this story. I don't I don't really know anybody. No one's ever mentioned it to me. And most, you know, there's quite a few people that know that I do a podcast. So I would think one of them would say, hey, by the way. So I'm excited that I got to learn more about it. And it's interesting to see the familiar places and the telling of this. It really makes it hit home in a different kind of way. And that's the thing with, with doing local stuff is it's a good reminder that it's easy to see these things as as like a story or as something that happened, but you can distance yourself from it. So you feel a little safer. And even if you get really upset because it's a terrible things happened, there's still sometimes that feeling that it's still not like in your backyard. So when it is almost literally in your backyard, it takes it to a whole other level. And I think it helps you understand and respect it. Respect as in that it happened and to have the appropriate feelings that go along with that instead of having that distance from it. And it's good because it reminds you the victims are real. And that's the respect is you respect the people who it affected. And when it's in your town, even if it's not modern day, it still is a little bit of an eye opener. And then it's all, always interesting to see what, ha what has changed and what hasn't changed and, and all that. So with Cold Serial, it's by Brian Forschner. It came out in 2016. So I'm going to read this quick excerpt to help you kind of get in the mindset of where it's coming from. These stories are true and have been reconstructed based largely upon numerous local and national newspaper accounts, autopsies, death certificates, and trials as summarized by the press of that time. No trial documents exist. The characters are real and actual dialogue is used when available. Narrative has been added to weave the facts as known with a reasonable discernment and expansion of what was said or might have been said in a given circumstance. The life and death of these girls is unique because of the social and political controversy surrounding them and the injustices done at multiple levels. These girls' lives have been forgotten, hidden, or never told. No monuments exist. An attempt has been made to memorialize them by telling their stories, for telling their stories is doing the work of justice. My hope is that you will love them and not forget these women whose lives were so typical of their era. He goes on to say that the reason this even came on his radar is he was looking up relatives, you know, doing some genealogy. He found a woman named Mary Forshner. It was a great aunt that had never been mentioned to him. He soon finds out that Mary Forshner is connected to Ada Lance, Dona Gilman, Anna Markowitz, and Elizabeth Fullhart. These were the victims of Jack the Strangler. We begin with Ada Lance, October 13th, 1900. She was 11 years old and they were having a birthday party for their parents. There were about 40 people at the party. At 10.40 p.m., they realized that she had disappeared. They couldn't find her anywhere. And I quote, some went as far as the juncture of the Cincinnati-Hamilton-Dayton Railroad and city trolley tracks two blocks away, known as a hangout for hobos. McCabe Park was within walking distance. The park had a reputation for harboring unsavory characters and was notorious for carousing, gunshots, and crime. Tintown, one of the two or three predominantly black suburban communities in Dayton, was adjacent to McCabe Park and often unfairly targeted as a source of crimes committed on the west side of Dayton. Tintown got its name from the flattened tin cans used as roofing. So you can see immediately 
that the concern is maybe one of the shady characters that hangs out in this park could have come and gotten her and taken her back to the park or something like that. And unfortunately, there is some, there's definitely racial tension at this point, as you can already tell. So that's definitely going to be a huge part of this story. At 11.05, they decided to check the outhouse. They see a shoe inside. They pull it, and it's attached to a leg. They wind up tearing it down, getting a ladder, and one of her brothers went into the muck. They pull her out. Her dad tried to revive her, but she was dead. They take her inside and try to clean her up. And this is one of those really, really hard things to read. It's just this, the whole idea that your daughter's missing and you find her in the outhouse and she's covered as if it's not insulting enough that someone killed your daughter. They put her in the outhouse and the idea that the family had to get covered in it and that they were so frantic. It's just, it just paints this whole just terrible picture. So that's where we're at. So they've pulled her out of this outhouse. They try to clean her up. Her clothes are nearly gone. Her slip was shredded. She was wearing underpants and one shoe. There was blood on her underpants and a gash on her cheek. They threw away the filthy clothes and burned them. It took 30 minutes from when they found her in the outhouse to bring her inside the house. They notify the police at 1135. The coroner shows up and does a preliminary exam. He sees bruising on the shoulders, bruising on her neck with her hyoid bone appearing broken as if strangled, he believes she was alive when she was forced into the outhouse hole and she was possibly raped. It was the only murder that year. At three o'clock in the morning, the cops came. They found out she died around 11, but it was just now being treated as a homicide. So they were obviously a little frustrated, but you know, things, things are happening so fast and they got caught up in everything. And so it's easy to see how with all that happening, because they realized well, it couldn't be an accident. She didn't just trip and fall in there because of the size of the hole is she would have had to be forced in it. You couldn't just fall in. It's not that wide. So they finally realized. And when the, especially when the, the coroner came and said, that obviously had been strangled and, and things like that, then then they were like, oh, now we need to, it's definitely a thing we need to. But the problem is, it's been a while. So you've lost some of your leads and some of your forensics. There were cane prints there. And I quote, crime scene preservation in 1900, still in its infancy, excised as more of an intuitive exercise than a scientific one. The crime scene had been violated, the body had been tampered with, and the clothing destroyed. Virtually any and all evidence was gone, and the murderer-slash-rapist had a several-hour head start. They did surmise that the way it was probably done, she went out the back door into the yard, possibly to use the outhouse. She was grabbed by a man with a cane or club who was waiting on the other side of the fence in the backyard of a vacant house next door. He grabbed her around the throat and mouth, wrestled her to the ground, and clubbed her dragged her to the other side of the fence in that vacant yard, assumed she was dead, sexually assaulted her, and they did find pieces of what was left of her shredded clothing on the rows and bushes on the neighbor's side of the fence. He then half carried, half dragged her to the outhouse and forced her in. Then he left through the back gate into the alley. It probably took about 15 minutes. And that's just, I think that's one of the hardest things to, to think is that something so violent and terrible it just seems crazy that it takes that short a time. And, and I'm sure that it feels like forever. I don't want to take away from that. But it's just one of those things where it's just so hard to believe that someone can do something so terrible and, and final in that short amount of time. 
and that there were 40 people and no one saw. They looked at the trail that led through the back gate into the alley, but that's there were a bunch of wagon tracks and it didn't really take them anywhere. At this time period, there were three newspapers in the city. The Dayton Journal, the morning paper with Republican leanings, the Dayton Daily News in the afternoon with Democratic leanings, and the Dayton Herald Evening News, which was independent. The important thing to note about that is that you have three papers that are all excited to get scoops and get the information, so they may get information from different angles. So you may actually find some different information in the morning, evening, and afternoon paper. So you have more sources and more resources to go to, unlike where maybe today there's like one Dayton paper, as far as I can think of. And they cover what they cover. And I'm sure they're as insightful as they can be and as thorough as they can be. But I think it's interesting that there was a time period when some cities might have even had six. So that's one thing that I learned about in my interview with Glenn Stout, which was a recent episode. Make sure you check that out because he wrote the amazing book, Tiger Girl and the Candy Kid, which happened in the 1900s as well. And he talks a lot about the different papers and and how his research really revolved around all the news, different newspapers reporting. Remember, this is 1900, so Jack the Ripper happened 1889, 1890, late 1890s. So then after the Jack the Ripper murders happened, they had nicknames for other criminals. Like in New York, they had Jack the Grabber. In Cincinnati, they apparently had Jack the Pincher and Jack the Peeper. So you saw that trend begin because it's fresh. I mean, it's like it just happened. Speaking of newspapers, crime reporters played significant investigative roles as well. The police generally accepted them as members of the investigative team. So that's another thing that's that's an interesting thing to see is that they actually embraced it and they worked together. Whereas, and I mean, you still see that in some capacity today, but you also see that there's a lot of times where they're at odds with each other. So it's interesting to see how they work together at this period of time. After her murder, the Herald proclaimed, and I quote, Dayton's police department, alleged to be 50 years behind the age and woefully deficient otherwise. That is a glove slap if I ever saw one. At this point, Dayton had 83,000 people with 46 people on the police force and one full-time detective. Officers had to check in every hour by call box where they would get instructions or updates. They could not be contacted directly. They'd have to ride to the site of a crime on a horse or wagon. So if someone wanted to contact a cop out in the field, they would have to run and find them. So that's another thing to keep in mind is is at this time period, you know, we're so used to cell phones. And I know we all know that they haven't always been around. But it's really important to, to set you in this time period to see what they're up against. So their police force, they had lots of people and not so many police. And it was difficult to contact each other. Another thing that I find intriguing is at this point, the article says that Detroit is better. And it quote, Detroit prides itself on prevention. The police force of Detroit is so efficient that crooks take care to avoid the city. They go to Dayton instead, which had been the, called the dumping ground of crooks, according to this article. Growing up, I've always heard Detroit spoken of as a city full of crime. I'm pretty sure that's where RoboCop was. And I know in the Kentucky Fried movie, one of the jokes is to punish someone, send him to Detroit. So it's really funny <laughs> that I just have known of Detroit as not the most upright place. 
and to hear that apparently in 1900 it had its shit, its shit together. So I don't know what happened. They go on to say a large contingent of local officials, the city commissioners, the police commission, other elected officials, and of course, several members of the Dayton Police Department left for Detroit to learn about its police department operations. The goal was to modernize the Dayton Police Department and carry out some of the recommendations from the original report initiated by the Herald, such as bring the department up to appropriate staffing levels and hire a permanent chief. Detroit has the most modern and best police department in the country outside of New York and Chicago, the report said. So again, it's just another thing where it's really interesting to see at this point in time, the Dayton Police Department needed an upgrade, apparently, and so they were going to Detroit. They were doing what they could to try to become a better department, and I think that's just a really interesting snapshot of what was happening with the law in that period of time. And it is important to note that this is going on while Jack the Strangler is beginning his terror, terrorizing reign. There were a few suspects, but it didn't pan out, so the investigation was going nowhere. Over the next year, two women were assaulted and one was almost assaulted. One was raped, and I quote, by a tall, burly black man with huge hands in a train yard a few blocks from the Lance residence. She escaped and wasn't found, and that family moved. An attempt by a large black man with huge hands to pull a girl through grandstand seats at a circus event. He was chased and stopped, but no charges were filed. She's sitting in these grandstands and a guy tries to pull her through the seats. That's ballsy. I don't know. That just, I can't imagine being pulled through bleachers and to be abducted. And for some reason, no charges were filed. So I don't know. The same guy was caught trying to get to a woman in her room. He was arrested, found guilty of property destruction, fined and released. He worked in train yards and lived a dozen blocks from the Lances. So the same guy that tried to take the girl to circus was arrested, but he didn't officially assault this, this woman in her room. So he was let go, which, I mean, I understand, but it's still one of those frustrating things where if this is the guy, and they had him twice, and they weren't able to pursue him. A woman was assaulted October 1902. Her brother got shot trying to help. There was no positive ID on the attacker, and the list included some sus suspects of Ada's murder as well. Women in nearby Cincinnati suburb was murdered less than a mile from one another. All were bludgeoned, one was raped, one was buried before the autopsy. There were no suspects. So some naturally wondered if that was connected with the murder of the little girl. Lakeside Amusement Park, the Veterans Home or Soldiers Home, and McCabe Park were all on the west side of town, and they were popular places to visit. There were rides, boating, dancing, and entertainment. There were beautiful grounds, an arboretum, a chapel, and a chance to mingle with Civil War vets. McCabe Park was, repute, again, reputed for rowdiness, and it was like a lover's lane. There was also a trolley service that went around and delivered people to those places to and from. So that's an important note. The next victim was from the Gilman family. There were three members who worked for NCR, National Cash Register. Dona, who was 19, Fane was 25, and Collins was 17. They lived within a block of the unlit and unsupervised McCabe Park, and they often heard gunshots there. November 20th, Dona usually went home with Fane, but Fane was detained at work. 
Dona goes home by her by herself, and she takes the trolley to Brown Street, transferred to the Fifth Street trolley at Fifth and Ludlow, went to Lakeside Park and Soldier's Home, took about an hour. She got off the trolley about 610 at Groveland and National Avenue stop. She had about two blocks to get home. There was no lighting. Collins and Fane happened to be just a few minutes behind her, and they saw nothing. They figured she made it home safely, or she went straight to the concert that they were supposed to meet at. However, it turns out she did not come home, and she did not show up at the concert that they were supposed to meet at. At this point, it's important to note that the family was known for their disputes. At one point, someone was locked in a closet, a sheriff was called, the neighbors heard arguments. One possibly tried to stab another one in the family. So they were kind of known to be the uh, rambunctious family. So November 22nd, she's still missing. Her mother thought she saw something in the yard. She sent Collins to look, and it turns out it was Dona, and she was deceased. Her clothes were soaked. Her coat was buttoned down to the ankles as if she was placed there. There were cuts and scratches on her face. It was bruised and swollen like she was clubbed or punched. And there was rigor mortis. They brought her into the house. The neighbors came. One woman looked under her dress. I don't fucking know. (laughs) It just... I don't know. <laughs> Why would you look nosy neighbors? And I understand that to a certain point, but looking up the dress might be a bit much. They didn't want to call the police because of those prior issues. So instead of calling the cops, they called the doctor to come check her out and, just, you know, kind of help them along and help them figure out what to do. At this point, she had been missing for two days. When the doctor showed up, he wondered why the cops weren't there and why the body was moved. Again, it's that thing where it's really hard, I imagine, when you find a loved one in that position to not want to take care of them and clean them up, you know. So I understand the impulse to want to move them. But unfortunately, when it comes to a murderer, any way that you touch and anything that you do can contaminate, can hinder finding the killer. So it's a really, it's a, it's a shitty situation to be in. But there it was. That's what happened. They t- took her inside the house where they felt that she should be. They called morticians to take her to their 3rd Street facility. She appeared to be strangled. Her clothing was torn or cut with a knife. Her hose were shredded. And the underpants were missing. It didn't happen in the park. It happened elsewhere, and she was placed there. They found her time of death to be 6.30 on Tuesday. The neighbors found her gloves and umbrella on the other side of the street, and they were dry. Now, keep in mind, it had been raining. They couldn't find her purse, hat, ring, pin, or book. It was a possible connection to a similar Cincinnati case, but they weren't sure. There was a $3,000 reward from county commissioners for apprehension of her murder, plus a $2,000 reward for conviction of any similar cases in Montgomery County. The president of NCR, John H. Patterson, added $1,000 of his own money, and NCR workers added $2,000. Patterson also hired a nurse to look in on the ill mother. Supposedly, NCR tried to keep the family's domestic disturbance out of the news so they wouldn't look bad. Word was Patterson was already talking about moving it out of Dayton. Over 100 cities had bid for the business. He said, Dayton is known, and justly too, I believe, as being the worst city in the state, and it turns out more criminals than any other city in the state. There is no place in Montgomery County where a family can eat dinner under a tree without fear of molestation. Naturally, local businessmen and officials feverishly attempted to address his concerns and keep the 6,000 employees in Dayton. Side note, NCR finally did move in 2009 to Duluth, Georgia. They almost left in 1900, but they didn't leave until 2009. 
So they stayed here for a while. Apparently Dayton wasn't as bad as all that. Collins, the brother, was suspected. Fain and Collins told a Cincinnati Post reporter they had seen a Negro man in the area, and a trolley conductor said a Negro had gotten off at the same stop. People threatened to burn down Tintown and conduct some lynchings. Because, of course. Let's jump straight to racism and hatred. The Cincinnati Enquirer mentioned parallels with two murders in Cincinnati supposedly committed by, and I quote, a 5'10", 190-pound Negro with a light brown complexion and mustache wearing a long, dark cravenette coat and either a dark derby or high-crowned corduroy cap. So because that was reported, of course, people jumped on that theory. Trolley conductors said that two black men, one was an old soldier with a cane and a wooden leg, another man was on the rear platform and dressed in a dark cravenette coat, he thinks that he got off a couple stops later with another man. So men supposedly fitting these descriptions were seen on the trolley where Dona was, supposedly. Now the important thing about there was a shoulder with a cane and a wooden leg, that's kind of interesting because in Ada's case, they said that they saw cane marks around there. So that's interesting that I don't know whether that means he really did see these two men or if he's drawing from the different stories and putting things together. Don't know. A nosy neighbor testified against the family. When the coroner is asked what his thought is, and I quote, Well, I'm not going to speculate. I'm confident that she was strangled and raped by a Negro. So you have the, I'm not going to do this thing, and then you follow up by doing that exact thing. <laughs> I'm not going to say that this happened, but I'm going to say that this happened. So that's exactly what he did. Another witness describes a man, as the description was in the Cincinnati paper. And again, this is, I don't know whether people are just jumping on the bandwagon or if it's legitimate. Well, then Dona's mom, Leah, was hospitalized at Miami Valley. Then rumors started making started coming around, making Dona sound like she had a bad reputation. They called her a good fellow girl or a working girl like the type that frequents downtown Dayton to drink and party, implying that they get what they deserve. The book says the public dialogue had even reached the pulpit. Some ministers took the opportunity to preach their opinions, denouncing the evils of the city and suggesting that Dona's beauty and dress had driven the beast crazy with lust. So then it became a question of not whether she was raped, it's if she had promiscuous sex. So they wanted to exhume the body to prove that whether she was a slut or not. And this is another thing that just is so infuriating. But there it is. There was a group that felt that Dona's family did it. So they were on board with doing a second autopsy because they figured this doesn't have anything to do with any other murder. Their family did it. We all know that they are, you know, have had domestic issues and so it's probably them. A Cincinnati Post reporter says that there was a woman killed left near Cincinnati near the Hamilton-Dayton Railroad. Her jewelry was missing and she was raped. Again, we're still seeing the same kind of things happening and even in the Cincinnati area. They decide to harass a developmentally disabled man called Baby Dave. He confessed and then recanted. That's another thing that's really frustrating is when you hear cases where they're bullying mentally deficient people into confessing. And it's, it's basically, it's, it's disgusting. At one point, they had the powers that be had already made up their minds that when they do the second autopsy, that there wasn't going to be any rape, no matter what they discover. So you can definitely see that shadiness in there. Leah was taken to jail because, again, you had the group of people that felt that the family had killed her. They discovered that the rewards that they were offering 
defeated the purpose. So there was a detective that wanted the reward, so he faked evidence. And thankfully, they realized it was faked, and he was humiliated. Later, it was found that Collins was guilty, but Fane was not. And the news even made it to Ireland. Someone with uh, an Irish connection contacted him and was like, Hey, you know, Dayton, here in Ireland, we're hearing all about your murders. It's making Dayton look great. The Markowitz family came from Poland. They immigrated in 1871. They moved to Dayton in 1907 on the corner of 5th and Brown Street. Their daughter Anna was 18 and quiet. Their daughter Bertha was 15 and unruly. They both went out with his boy because um, Bertha wanted to go out with a boy and the mom wanted Anna to be involved. Anna and Bertha go out with his boy. They don't really know him too well. They go to Gettysburg Avenue to Lakeside Park where they find it's closed. So they go to McCabe Park, unfortunately, where they hear a gunshot. Someone grabs Anna. The boy's name was Abe. Abe and Bertha run. Well, Abe gets shot. And during this time, Anna fought but was strangled and raped and her clothes were shredded. Bertha decides to come back to check on Anna to see what was, you know, if she was okay. But Bertha found her dead. And then at that point, neighbors and patrolmen came. Their two brothers, Anna and Bertha had two brothers. They had heard what happened, so they decided to check at the station, and then they're arrested along with Bertha. Some believe that, some believe this murder is related to Donna and Ada's killings. But some people thought it was actually the two brothers, because you always want to blame the family, apparently. <laughs> I mean, I guess, I guess I understand. I don't know. What their thought was is they followed her. They found that she had been raped, so they shot Abe because they thought that Abe did it. Some thought that one of the brothers choked Anna for putting everyone in that bad position while the other brother shot Abe. So in, in, in both cases, the brothers are shooting Abe. So we've got racism, we've got sexism, and now we have anti-Semitism. A Herald editorial was critical of the foreign press coverage of the murder accusing the Markowitz brothers of Anna's murder. The editorial entitled More Yellow Journalism stated, there is not the slightest occasion for this, the accusation against the Markowitz brothers, because the Jews are the most law-abiding and moral people of all the races of mankind. They went on to clarify, however, that We are not so well acquainted with the Polish Jews, but the Jews as a class are both clean and self-respecting. It's unfortunate. Just to lump any group of people, even if it's a positive thing, is... Uh, it's cringeworthy. So now we have that in there. Thankfully, though, the boys were released. They were all released with no charge. Now, we find a possible suspect. A trolley driver said he had taken a black man to the area and noticed that the man had been hanging around McCabe and the guy was called Hike or Hick. It turns out he was talking about Leighton Hines, who had no previous record. The cop pointed Hines out to the trolley driver and was like, hey, that's Hines. And the guy's like, oh, yeah, that's him. Didn't meet the description. Although it didn't help that Leighton Hines' alibi was unconfirmed. So they take him in. They point a gun at him that they found at his place, threatened him, and <laughs> surprisingly enough, he confessed. Then there's a question of, the, of Leighton Hines' mental capacity. There was an African-American newspaper called the Dayton Observer. And, of course, they saw the attempt over the years to blame a black man for, pretty, for, for everything that had been happening to all these women over the past few years. The Ohio African-American League took up collections for Hines to help pay for his defense. 
There was a reverend that commented J.G. Robinson from the Eaker Street AME Church. He was, surprisingly, he was critical of how the case was handled and how Heinz was grilled by county officials without representation. And he advised that we should possess our souls and, if need be, help furnish counsel, not to clear or defend him, not to convict him, but to see that he gets a fair and impartial hearing. Property values have no color. Character has no color. Good citizenship has no color. Yet it is passing strange that the jury wheel is so turned in a free community as Dayton is supposed to be that not a black face shows up, thus making it impossible for Negro men to serve on the juries where their people are to be tried and their liberties passed upon. And indeed, the jury was all white. The evidence that they showed included Anna's organs, including her vagina, which were in preserving fluids in jars, although apparently they took them out of the jars and showed them to the jury and, like, passed them around. That just seems... I mean, they're tampering ev with evidence, right? I mean, I know the police have already looked at it, but do you want everybody touching everything? Like, I get if you, like, pass them around in jars. I don't know. I can't help but feel bad for Anna that her vagina was passed around to people. I understand that maybe it might help lead to prosecuting the person that did it to her, but it just feels gross. It turns out that they could not place Heinz at the scene, but he was found guilty, and he died in prison of tuberculosis. This um, probably innocent man went to jail for it. Did the killing stop? What do you think the answer is? Of course not. 15-year-old factory worker Mary Forschner worked at Klein's Cigars. She was taking payment to the bank for her family at 6.15. They lived on the corner of Hall and Kiwi, which she took to the Webster Street trolley. She didn't come home. They found a hat and glove near Webster, along with a broken fence, footprints, and in the barn, they found Mary dead. She had a bruised face, bloody vomit, her jacket was torn, her dress was a mess, and she was still warm. They found purse and her money. There were corduroy marks in the mud. She had been strangled, assaulted, dragged, alive. She fought. She was strangled again and assaulted again. They arrested a local farmer because his axe was apparently near the crime scene. And he had corduroy pants. So he's obviously guilty. Well then, what? There was another man? He had corduroy pants? Let's arrest him too. So there were two men arrested for having corduroy pants. They ruled that... She had died around six or seven, but the thing is, she was still warm when they found her, which was around, like, after midnight. She was probably killed around midnight. So there's a lot of fuzziness around that, and they even, when questioned, the coroner still was insistent she died around six or seven. But everyone's like, we felt her, she was warm, what the hell? So it's weird. Again, we have sh uh, conflicting details the fact that she was still warm when she was found, can you imagine the feeling of this probably just happened? How long ago was it? Like if, if we could have gotten here sooner, we might have been able to find him. She was buried at Woodland Cemetery. I have not gone there yet to uh, find her grave, but I am planning on doing that. The story managed to be in the Texas, Pennsylvania, and New York papers. So the word was spreading. The two guys arrested for having corduroy pants, they were released. Because of the corduroy detail, one paper dubbed him the corduroy killer. Thankfully, some efforts were being made to try to make things safer for people. So lighting was added at Front Street between 2nd and 3rd Streets. 
18-year-old Elizabeth Fullhart, who went by Lizzie, she lived in Vandalia but worked in Tippecanoe, which is known as Tip City now. She was dating a man named Albert. She told her family she would be with her aunt and uncle, but she was with him on Christmas Eve on Ludlow Street. But then on actual Christmas Day, they were with her aunt and uncle. She went looking around Dayton for a job, and she didn't wind up meeting Albert at her aunt's house later that night. While they're asking around, someone said they saw her near the area that Mary was found. Someone was trying to get water out of a nearby cistern, and they found a body in a gunny sack. It was Lizzie. She had been in the water for some time, and her nose was crushed. Her hat, bracelet, and scarf were missing. Albert was arrested. They couldn't figure out what the cause of death was. There was no bruise of consequence, and it didn't look like she had been strangled. And they couldn't tell if she was raped because, again, she had been in the water for a while. And that makes it harder to tell everything. There was a single murder theory, but authorities disagreed because why would they agree on anything that had good, de- good details and, you know, positive information pointing towards it? Another person said that it was just random, that all three of these victims, it's just a random thing. So while they said that it was random, the author points out that He ignored the bold nature of the murders, the identical modus operandi, the raping of dead girls, the collection of trophies like clothing and jewelry. And in the cases of Lance, Gilman, Forshner, and the Fullheart girls, the fact that it had been murdered and raped elsewhere and then taken to the site where they were found. It also did not take into account that the last hours before they died, the Gilman, Forshner, and Fullheart girls could be traced to the same area in downtown Dayton, near 5th and Main, next to the Canby building. Whether or not the Dayton Police Department's doubt about the guilt of Leighton Hines could be believed, Anna Markowitz could be traced to the same downtown area to the trolley transfer point to Lakeside and McCabe Parks with the Lance girl living on the route. In the Cincinnati area, there were women that were killed around the first, second, and fourth day of the month. Alma Steinway was strangled and then raped. Her body was left in a field. And her two rings and some clothing were taken. Lulu Mueller was bludgeoned to death with imprints on her neck that showed a strangulation attempt. She was not a virgin, so rape could not be confirmed. Both Alma and Lulu were killed by a left-handed man, as were the Gilman and Markowitz girls. Dayton Police Department tried to get more lights and more cops, and they were denied. So that's great. I mean, I understand, like, politics are always going to exist and there are reasons for things, but it just kind of fucking sucks that... After several murders, they weren't able to get more assistance. So where did Jack the Strangler come from? The Wilkes Bar Times from Wilkes Bar, Pennsylvania, ran an article entitled Five Beautiful Young Girls, All of Good and Unsullied Reputations, Struck Down by the Same Hand. It included pictures and compared the murders to the Whitechapel murders in London, commonly known as the Jack the Ripper murders. The newspaper was one of the first to call these murders the Jack the Strangler murders as these girls were all strangled and raped and had no parallel in American crime annals. They also did claim that the women were struck down by the same fiendish hand, and they claim that the Dayton police doubt Heinz's guilt, which kind of makes sense because if you have similar murders that, have to, that happen after you think you got the killer, maybe you should doubt. Just a thought. Well, then, during the postmortem, Lizzie was ruled strangled, but the time of death conflicted and it didn't link to the others. I don't know. There's all these, that's the thing is, there's all these details where they conflict and you don't know what's what. And you know how it goes in this kind of thing is, is it's hard to tell what is valid, what's not. And it's frustrating. 
a man was interviewed by the press and submitted a drawing that hinted at a pattern. The drawing seemed to show a straight line when drawn through the crime scenes, beginning with Mary Forshner, passing through Lizzie Fullhart and Ada Lance, to Dona Gilman and ending with Anna Markowitz. The line, coincidentally, ran through the downtown area and followed the trolley lines out to McCabe and Lakeside Parks. 1910, Bessie Stickford is raped. She's punched, choked, with a knife to her throat near Jefferson and 2nd Street. When she goes to the police, she explains she went to a job interview at Canby on 5th and Main. It was a vacant office. The janitor that greeted her was black and tall with huge hands. He said he could help her. There was a job at the synagogue where he was a janitor. So they went, and they went to the synagogue. The office was dark. He gets her in there, shuts and locks the door, and tries, and that's where she fights him, but he rapes her. It was the, the Benaya Sharon synagogue, which was within feet where Lizzie was found. I just mentioned a moment ago that these women were usually around the Canby area. So here she is on Canby. You have the same kind of description, and it's right near where one of the victims was found. It turns out it was Smith Hick White. He was arrested. She saw him and she screamed. So that was definitely a confirmation. This is the man that just did this to me. And someone said that they had seen White wearing his Cravenet coat, which, again, was one of the other descriptions of the murderer in these cases. Who is Smith Hick White? The investigation uncovered that White worked at the Canby building as a janitor, cleaning out offices that had been vacated and had been working at the Benai Yisharun Synagogue, also as a janitor, for the last four years. The side door of the synagogue was within 75 feet of the cistern where the body of Lizzie Fullhart had been found the previous year. White had lived in Dayton for 10 years, having moved there from Lexington, Lexington, Kentucky with Jenny and their three children. They currently lived in South Park, a suburb of Dayton, in a two-story home that had been given to Jenny, along with a modest inheritance by her father. White was known to take advantage of Jenny's money, spending it on women and drink. Jenny was currently bedbound after having had a breakdown. White was no stranger to the police. In 1900, he had tried to pull a 12-year-old girl through the grandstand seats at the Montgomery County Fairgrounds. When he fled, the police fired several shots. After he was arrested, no one pressed charges, so he was released. He had been apprehended in August 1902, for prying off a shutter of a residence in South Park where he saw a white woman sitting on the couch. He was arrested at his home and, when taken to be identified by the woman, tried to escape and was shot in the leg. The woman who identified him refused to press charges, so the police charged him with destruction of property, fined him $27, and released him. If this sounds familiar, this is what I mentioned earlier in the episode. Is a guy that tried to pull the girl from the grandstands, got away, and then he ended up getting, getting released a second time. as this guy. Hick White's picture appeared in all the papers and provoked over a dozen women to come forward and swear to the police that White had offered to help them find a job. Several had responded to an ad in the newspaper, apparently paid for or closely monitored by White. White would meet them after he got off of work at the Canby building and talk them into going into the synagogue four blocks away, where he had someone said someone would interview them. When he tried to lure them into the synagogue, they sensed something was up and fled. One girl indicated she had arranged to meet White at the corner of 2nd and Jefferson, about 100 feet from the synagogue, in December 1908, just days before the Forchner and Fullhart murders. However, she had decided not to go there. The police also uncovered an old case in which a woman had been criminally assaulted under a nearby railroad bridge. The case was never solved. 
And since the family felt disgraced, they moved back to Germany and then weren't found again. That assault occurred near the yard where White worked as a train car washer for the Cincinnati-Hamilton-Dayton Railroad line. He was often seen gathering coal that had fallen off of the trains. He would place it in gunny sacks similar to those used at the A&P warehouse, identical to that used to cover Lizzie Fullhart. There was a night watchman who had given a statement to the police that he had seen a girl meeting Mary Forstner's description standing in front of the 4th National Bank at the corner of 4th and Jefferson near the synagogue and the Canby building. And he saw her walking with a tall man wearing a cravenette coat. The Dayton police detectives start to talk to the Cincinnati police about their unsolved murders. There were similarities and circumstantial evidence emerging, putting White at the scene. The Iddings family, whose home and barn was right next to the synagogue, they came forward saying that White had pressured them every time he saw them to rent their barn, which had a room inside it. He told them repeatedly he needed for boxes and a place to sleep in the summer when it was too late to go home. They had refused to comply as none of this made sense. White had no boxes and lived only a few blocks away. At this point, more than 160 individuals, including 60 women, had testified to the grand jury that Hick White had approached them, their wives or female friends, often aggressively and offered help in finding them a job. The Montgomery County Ground Jury indicted Hick White, uh, alias Rick White, alias Smith White, alias Charlie White, for criminally assaulting Bessie Stickford. He pled not guilty. There were three murders in Cincinnati, and then there was a fourth one a few weeks before Lizzie Fullhart. And they they said that he knew the railroad schedules, and the four murders were along the railroad tracks between Dayton and Cincinnati, occurred while White, a former railroad employee, was living in Dayton. All of the murders were similar. Young women were accosted and beaten, often strangled, raped, and had clothing or jewelry stolen. He actually retracted his plea of not guilty, then pled guilty to the charge of rape, and was sentenced to 19 years. Less than three years into his sentence, he escaped. So he escaped in 1912. Three more women died or disappeared between 1915 and 1921 in Cincinnati while White was on the loose. An 11-year-old was blood bludgeoned and raped, and two 9-year-olds disappeared and were never found. 1922, so 10 years after he escapes, a girlfriend with whom White had been living in Girard, Ohio, turned him into the police. He had left her for another woman. He was returned to prison. Police were convinced that it was White who had murdered and probably raped Lizzie Fullhart. However, they never pursued the case because the evidence was purely circumstantial. White was also the prime suspect in the murder of Dona Gilman. The Markowitz murders took place near McCabe Park, two blocks from the Gilman residence. Ada Lance lived a few blocks away near the junction of the railroad tracks and the trolley line, which led to McCabe and Lakeside Parks. It was suspected that he had murdered and raped all of these girls. Was White the hike or hit who was referred to that led to the arrest of Leighton Hike Hines in the Markowitz case? Anna's job search would have brought her downtown, and while not a member of the synagogue at which White worked as a janitor, may have frequented social events there as well. She would have transferred at 5th and Main when she visited Lakeside Park. All of the women, with the exception of Ada Lance, could be placed near White's place of employment at the time of their murders. Once White was imprisoned for the second time, the murder and rape of young women in Dayton and Cincinnati dramatically ebbed. He was released in 1931 at the age of 71 and allegedly moved in with his brother in Madisonville, a suburb of Cincinnati. And I quote, The unjust treatment of women during this era is a well-told story. The criminal and social victimization of women during this time is not. 
Their portrait as young girls who gave joy to a family and friends were painted over by their rape and murder. They were criminally and socially victimized. Their legacy is the impact they had on the community that, often under duress, began to improve the rights, safety, and treatment of women. How tragic that their lives were forfeited to enable these changes. I could tell from Cold Serial by Brian Forshner, he really did look into it. You can tell he did his homework. He really searched and he had empathy for the victims. And so he was really trying to piece things together and find the truth as much as you can. And what's interesting is that I did look at on like Wikipedia and I started seeing some weird shit that I don't even know. And it blew my mind. It didn't. And, and it mentioned other people that they thought could have been Jack the Strangler did not mention Smith White. I found that intriguing because this seemed to be the main book that I could find. On Wikipedia, he did say that Cold Serial was one of his references and he had some newspaper articles and stuff. But I feel like this guy was so in-depth that I don't know how much I'm going to trust the Wikipedia thing. I guess one of the questions would be to double-check if some of the articles came out later. But even if they came out after 2016, who knows if they really are doing the research or if they're just spreading misinformation as tends to happen every now and then. I know that they don't come to a definite conclusion that Smith White was found without a doubt to be Jack the Strangler, but I think the things that they present are pretty solid. So I think that they make he makes a good case that Smith White probably was Jack the Strangler. So that's the bulk of the episode. As I said, I was going to focus mostly on that because I had most of the information on that. Going to talk about Neil Bradley Long. He was active between 1972 and 1975. He had four to seven victims here in Dayton, Ohio. He only killed African-American men primarily. Again, we see the racist thing. And now we're in the 1970s. So we go from the early 1900s to 1970s and people still kind of suck. In the late 1940s, he got married and had seven kids. In 1960s, he began to show signs of mental illness and violent behavior to black people. In October 31st, 1966, he told cops that in the summer of 1944, he was attacked by two black men, stabbed one man in self-defense, and ran away. So 20 years later, he comes back and says, I stabbed a guy and he could have died. I don't know. But there's no record of the incident, so they let him go. He goes to a psychiatrist in 1968. He spends three months in the Dayton Mental Health Center, diagnosed with psychopathic personality disorder. What a surprise. He was interested in firearms and military stuff. He owned pistols and shotguns. September 19, 1975, he shot 46-year-old sociologist Dr. Charles A. Glatt in the neck, chest, and abdomen in a federal office building. Glatt was a, an expert in desegregation busing. They had plans to end segregation in public schools in 18 states. He was hired to do it for Dayton, and Long had a 12-year-old son that would be affected by the desegregation of busing. He was afraid his son would be picked on. So he shot the guy and killed him. Apparently, he was going through a divorce when he was arrested, so he had some things going on. Could have also been another trigger for him, no pun intended. When he's arrested, he said that between 1972 and 1975, he was drinking alcohol and on drugs, and he shot 25 to 30 people from his car. He claims that he attacked 25 to 30 people by shooting at them from his car. So during this time period, there were several people killed. 
in drive-by shootings. There was a panic, and there was a $10,000 reward offered. They asked for the FBI to assist, but were turned down. It turns out Long was ID'd by survivors and witnesses, and they were able to match him to six murders. One victim in 1972, Eddie Friesen, survived. Edward Tillman was murdered in 1973. James Watts survived. George Ingram survived. That's when he shot into a crowd at a birthday party. So they were out on the lawn celebrating his birthday, and he just shot into the crowd. He killed Larry Roman in 1975. Robert Horde was murdered while he was taking out the trash. The guy was taking out the trash and was shot twice in the back. And then there was the attempted murder of Leonard Goff and Glenda Gay. He was ruled sane at the trial for killing Dr. Glatt. He confessed and he expressed remorse, which is interesting. Whether it's genuine or not, I can't tell you. He received life and then they connected him to three other murders. Citizens held all-night vigils for the victims. He ended up dying in 1998 and was known as the Shotgun Slayer or the Midnight Slayer. I found an article while I was researching from September 2016. I'm going to read it for you real fast because it does give some interesting details. It is by Josh Schweiger at the Dayton Daily News. No one was ever convicted for the September 1st, 1966 shooting of a black man named Lester Mitchell, an incident that sparked one of the worst riots in Dayton's history. But retired Dayton police detective Dan Baker believes there's evidence that Mitchell's killer may have been Neil Bradley Long, a racist who terrorized West Dayton for years, shooting dozens of black men and eventually gunning down the architect of Dayton School's busing plan in the federal courthouse. Baker says he came to this realization after retiring from the, the police department and writing a book with his wife, attorney Gwen Knowles. The book, titled Blood in the Streets, Racism, Riots, and Murders in the Heartland of America, was published in 2014. Baker wanted to write about race riots that shaped his first years on the force in the 1960s, and about Neil Bradley Long, who in 1975 confessed to Baker, then a homicide detective, that Long shot 25 or 30 people with a shotgun while stalking the West Side at night. As he began to research the Mitchell killing, I began to think there was a linkage, he said. Baker said it hadn't occurred to anyone when Long was collared because most thought that the Mitchell killer had been identified. Several months after the killing, Dayton's police chief told the media that a jailhouse snitch had fingered the Mitchell shooter as another man who died in the shootout. But his, in his research, Baker says he found little evidence police put much effort into confirming this theory. The police file today still lists the crime as unsolved. Baker realized the description of Mitchell's killer matched Long. The time, place, and manner of shooting were the same. Everything is there. Every inch of the M.O. is there, Baker said. Perhaps most bizarrely, Baker discovered that Long walked into the Dayton Police Department on Halloween 1966 and told police he had stabbed and possibly killed a black man two decades prior. Baker said the confession was dismissed by detectives. It's unclear when his shooting rampage began. Long originally said he shot maybe 30 people over four years. There were three confirmed deaths. But he later told a federal court psychologist that he fired at around 100 blacks, possibly killing 20. He outlined his motivation in the 1975 confession. Well, there was much, there was so much trouble between colored and the white, and colored was, looked like they was doing everything they could. At that time, they made threats against the white people, he told Baker, another detective. They didn't want him in West Dayton. It wasn't safety to go to work across West Dayton, and that's why I first started. 
said Long, according to a transcript of his confession. The interview took place in a U.S. Marshal's holding cell in the federal courthouse in Dayton. Long had walked into the courthouse office of Charles Glatt, who was brought in to plan the desegregation of Dayton schools. He shot Glatt to death with a handgun. When the shooting occurred, Baker and a detective, Gary Prue, were at the nearby Moraine Embassy Bar and re- bar and restaurant discussing ways to track down the man dubbed by the media as the Shotgun Slayer or Midnight Slayer for gunning down numerous black people over several summers. Baker rushed to the courthouse. He remembers seeing Glatt being carried out on a gurney and walking into the third floor holding cell where Long was washing his hands with his back to the door. Baker saw his reflection in the mirror over the sink. Long looks up and looks at us. Gary and I just gasped because he looked like the composite sketch of the Midnight Slayer. The interview transcript included Long describing how he would get drunk on beer and whiskey and cross the bridge to the west side on evenings warm enough to roll down his windows. He drove a 1964 Oldsmobile at first and fired his sawed-off Marlin shotgun out the window at black men usually as they walked alone, often several victims each night. Baker noted that officials missed several opportunities to stop Long. Two months after the Mitchell shooting, at roughly the same time in the morning, Long drunkenly crashed his car into the Rosedale Drive Bridge into West Dayton over Wolf Creek. Baker said the responding officer didn't search the car in the pouring rain. Long told doctors he heard voices from God and was committed to a state mental institution as schizophrenic and homicidal. He was later released and stopped checking in with his doctors. The FBI kept a file on Long, Baker found, after he sent a letter critical of J. Edgar Hoover. They tracked his mail and his interest in communism. Baker said researching Long reminded him of being a homicide detective again. Having sat close to him, talked with him, looked him in the eye, and viewed his lifeless victims, he was, without a doubt, a cold-blooded racist killer. I was proud as a member of the Dayton Police Department to be part of bringing Long's reign of terror to an end. I did find the confession on YouTube, and it's um, it's a little bit hard to hear, but they do have have it written out for you so you can follow along. And it shows some images in between the transcript. He goes by Karma with a C. So that's kind of interesting. I don't know what that, because he is also a psychopath and with issues. So it, I don't know if it's like, it makes sense that he means karma, like that he is karma, that he is going to kill these black people for being black because that's karma coming to punish them be, because of this color of their skin. I don't, I don't know. And if he's not intelligent, which he doesn't really sound like he was, he might not know that karma spelled usually with a gay. But he goes by karma. He lived on Grand Avenue. He had a sawed-off shotgun and a, a pump gun 12-gauge. There was um, a person that he was about to shoot in a phone booth, and the guy said, why, man, why? The victim didn't know the gun was unloaded, and Long didn't answer. He just looked at him. On Broadway and 3rd Street, he shot at a guy. It was empty, so he reloaded it, shot at the guy again. It didn't fire, and the guy kept walking. And I quote, lack to hell with you. And I just love that image of, of, of someone just being like, fuck you. Like, you're going to try to shoot me? Whatever. I don't give a shit. And thankfully, he wasn't able to kill that person. Some of the streets he went along were go along Riverview, Main Street, Washington Street, Cincinnati Street. They mentioned the article that he bought a Marlin. He got that at a Fifth Street trading store for $25. There was one point where there was so much publicity, he was afraid to do it more. He drank whiskey or beer, worked till 11 o'clock, then would go out. And they, when the interviewers asked him, well, when did you shoot people? How did you know? And he would just say, when I felt like it. There was a man who chased him in West Dayton towards Miamisburg, turned and fired at him, and he fired back. 
He would drive around for hours. He was focused on men. So he tried to shoot people who were alone. And then this is his, his somewhat unintelligible statement. Well, if you got to do something like that, then you can't do it out where everybody's going to see you because that's the first thing you know you'll be if you're going to do it. You might as well do it and get by with it. The too long, didn't understand version is basically just sums it up at the end. If you're going to do it, you might as well do it and get by with it. So his argument is that's why he was trying to shoot people who were by themselves and not just usually people who would be in the public is, you know, I want to do this thing, so why would I do it in a way that's going to get me caught? Although, as I said, he did shoot at a crowd once. That is the story of Neil Bradley Long. Now move on to the last section. And this one, I just, I was looking up local things and I kept seeing these articles about in 2018, 2017, 2018, that women were found killed along North Main. I'm going to kind of go along it. I wanted to see if it was a serial killer thing or not. And regardless of whether it is or isn't, I think it's, again, it's just important to know things that have happened in your area and maybe... You might know something about it. Maybe you can help out. I don't know. But I think it's important, again, to be aware. I found out about the Main Street killer. The first victim was found June 21st, 2017 in the Santa Clara neighborhood. She was found in an alley behind dilapidated houses on North Main and West Norman. Her name was Jasmine Wadsworth of Uber Heights. Apparently, she went to a party in the alley and she was shot six times. She was 39 years old and had three kids. Well, after this, four more women were found within a mile radius. There was Crystal Garcia, 30-year-old from Dayton. Amanda Fella, 34-year-old from Miamisburg. Amanda was found in an alley on Superior with a bullet wound to the head. Crystal was found shot once in the head and found in a yard of a vacant house on West Hudson. And she had been there for 13 days. Both of those murders remain unsolved. Deanna Prendergast, 39-year-old of Kettering. She was found underneath a discarded door in the yard of a vacant house on East Hudson. She was a mother of three, and there were signs of strangulation, but she was too decomposed for them to be able to tell very much. Kathleen Driscoll, 31-year-old of Dayton. She was found to have OD'd but she was wrapped in blue fabric. That makes it, obviously, there's a level of shade there because if she OD'd, how would she have wrapped herself up? Like, I guess she could have, as she was dying, she decided to wrap herself up. Doesn't really make sense. So obviously it seems like there's some kind of foul play there. The Montgomery County Sheriff, Phil Plummer, of the has the Range Drug Task Force. He thinks that these were tied, these deaths were tied to the drug trade and sex work. There were was crack, powdered coke, fentanyl, and weed, and U.S. currency that were confiscated, and seven people were arrested in this uh, drug ring. They said that key players were identified, and they were working on being brought down. Two more raids were conducted in Riverside and Old Riverside, and they believe that this is all part of Main Street drug group. Jasmine, Crystal, and Amanda were all ruled homicides. Kathleen, they said she OD'd, and Deanna was undetermined. So that was pretty much all of the information. The Dayton Police Chief Richard Beale had said in an article, In terms of the crimes themselves, there's no significant evidence to link them. With that said, until we know more, we can't rule that out. 
Now, Crystal's mom said that she thinks that Crystal knew two of the other girls that were murdered and that she had said that she was worried that she would be killed. Most likely, this probably is part of a drug ring and not the work of a serial killer, but it's just an important thing to know about and to be aware of. I didn't really see any anything other than articles from 2017, 2018, so I didn't really see any other follow-ups or if they hadn't had any new leads. So I'm guessing if, if it went anywhere, they didn't really report much on it, or maybe it didn't end up getting any further than this. If for some reason you do know anything about these women's deaths, you can reach out to Crime Stoppers. You can go to DaytonOhio.gov, and that's DaytonOhio spelled out, .gov. Or call 937-222-STOP, which is 937-222-7867. It might be a long shot that anybody might know anything or have information. But again, it never hurts to to remind people of cold cases and things that happened. Because you just never know. There might be someone out there that can help. That is the Local Serial Killers episode. I'll probably do another one again some other time. And... I know that uh, Igor did a couple episodes on local true crime. If you have not caught them, make sure you check them out. Make sure you keep an eye on the social media. As I said, we'll probably have some new graphics coming out, some new logos. We've got some new merch. And I am still trying to plan an event because I would like us all together so we can all hang out and have uh, all kinds of fun, even in, in the midst of the true crime that... I have no words. My brain is not here today, and I can't word good. So I'm going to stop talking, and thank you all for hanging in there and tuning in, and I love you. With that, thank you, as always, for entering the lab. If you enjoy the experience and experiments of Murder Lab, go to Facebook, Instagram, and MurderLabMedia.com for updates. Share with your friends, those you created in a lab or not, as long as they can subscribe and listen, we'll take it. Murder Lab is available on Google Play and iTunes. The RSS feed is on MurderLabMedia.com for you to plug into your podcast app. We can always use more lab rats. I can't help but feel bad for Anna that her vagina was passed around to people.